The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Created during the perilous early months of the Second World War, the Special Boat Service was the world's first maritime special operations unit. Now, more than 80 years later, the first authorised history of the unit has been published, written by the historian and author Saul David. On today's episode, Saul joined BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar to discuss how the SBS played a crucial but unsung role in the Allied victory in the Second World War. First of all, I wonder if we could begin by discussing the genesis of this book, because the story of how it came about is a little bit unusual, isn't it? It's very unusual. A couple of years ago, about uh, spring 2019, I was contacted by my uh, agent who said, would you be interested in writing the authorised history of the SBS? And of course, my initial reaction was, who wouldn't? Um, But there was an odd story. And the reason they'd asked me is because my agent also happens to represent or used to represent Paddy Ashdown. Now, Paddy Ashdown, I'd grown up with, you know, knowing as a politician and admiring very much, but also there was a story he'd been in the Royal Marines. And some accounts, you know, referred to his uh, membership of the SBS. And uh, and that, of course, was true. Uh, it He later on wrote about some of the special operations of the Second World War, including Operation Frankton, uh, which forms, you know, uh, one of the major parts of the book. And uh, he was very determined as a former member of the unit, but also someone who'd wrote, written history, to tell the story of the SBS, to somehow make sense of what is quite a, a tangled bloodline, as, as even the current unit puts it. Um, and therefore, he uh, approached his agent, my agent, and through them, his publisher, HarperCollins, who also happened to be my publisher, uh, and was commissioned to write the book. But very sadly, as it, I think is reasonably well known now, he died rather suddenly uh, towards the end of 2018 and was well into the book, but of course hadn't finished it. So that the question was, what do we do next? Do we get someone to finish it or do we get someone to write a new version? Now, they approached me with both pos- possibilities, sent me the manuscript. It was very good in its own way, but it was not what I would have written, uh, to be frank, Rob. I mean, you know, he... 
he comes from the uh, perspective of a practitioner. His writing was very emotive uh, in, in the sense that you could see that he, li- he lived and breathed the story in a sense. Um, and I've always tried to keep an objective distance as any historian does. And, and having read his early chapters, I decided it would make much more sense to start from scratch. So within a relatively short space of time, I had put this to both my agent and my publisher and also to the unit itself, who, because they had authorised it, very much wanted to say and who would do it and how he would do it. And cut a long story short, after a few more months of toing and froing, me writing a proposal, we agreed that I would write the book and I would write it in my own way, but I would give due acknowledgement to Paddy uh, in terms of the genesis. And that's exactly what I've done. And so this is an authorised history, but of course, of a fairly secretive organisation. So how far were you able to go into the archives, go into the records? Were there any things that were still off limits? There weren't, actually. If there was a problem at all, it was that their archives could have been fuller. I think one of the interesting things about a secret organisation is that they don't even encourage their members to write first-hand accounts. Certainly not at the time. It goes without saying that that diaries and and even letters during operations are considered to be a bit of a no-no. Of course, they happen, and historians are delighted they do. But the more secret the the organisation, the the harder it is really to get that original first-hand material. So, but as far as far as the unit was concerned and their archives down in Poole, in their secret base in Poole, I was given absolutely carte blanche uh, to see everything. I-, I wish there'd been more. There was enough to make it absolutely worthwhile to go down there. I think the other really important thing about being an authorised history and not, I should add, an official history is that I I decide what I want to put in in the book. There's no overall, you know, you absolutely can't put that in from their perspective, but you hope you get good access. And indeed, I did get good access. But I think as well as the documents I was able to see at Pool Rob, I also had access to the people. And I think that was invaluable because it allowed me to uh, understand really where the unit is today and how it it takes its bloodline very seriously from the Second World War, how the ethos is still uh, similar and how they very much look back to the past, the founding fathers, so to speak, uh, to, you know, to understand where they came from and in a small sense where they're going. So a really basic question, but I suppose quite an important one. What exactly is the SBS? Well, uh, today it's known as the Special Boat Service. Um, uh, back in the Second World War, it went under a number of different names. I mean, one of the one of the reasons I think Paddy was so determined to write the book himself, and one of the tricky hurdles I had to overcome is is how to explain the story. Who's involved? Uh, who is relevant to the story of the SBS? Now, if we go back right to the beginning, there was uh, a, a key player in the story, a man called Roger Jumbo Courtney, who is recognised today by the modern SBS as the father of the unit. Now, he's the one who created the first maritime special operations unit towards the end of 1940, known as the Folbot Troop. Folbot, in other words, fold boat, the kind of German for fold boat, the use of canoes for special operations. And canoes, of course, are incredibly useful for special operations, as long as the weather's not too bad, because it allows you to move very low to the water and stealthily into your objective. So it's almost the ideal way to get into a coastline as long as there's not a storm going. And this guy, Roger uh, Jumbo Courtney, is one of the three key players. And he set up, as I say, the Fulbot Troop, which becomes the special boat section. So that was the first use of the term SBS. But interestingly enough, 
His background was in the army commandos. And of course, the current SBS are probably best known because of their links to the Royal Marines. So what you had gradually as the Second World War developed is not only the SBS, the special boat section being created, but also sister organizations, including the Coppists, and later on the RMBPD, better known uh, to a a modern audience, of course, as the Cockleshell Heroes. And it's those three strands, really, the Royal Navy, the Army Commandos, and the Royal Marines, who all fed together into an organization at the Second World War that the SBS very much uh, see their lineage coming out of. And in your book, you tell the story of all of these groups, don't you? Yes. I mean, I felt it was important not to leave anyone out. I mean, I tried not to be too exhaustive, of course, because you don't want to have every single little operation. You don't want to have every single little training run. And you don't want to, sadly, include every single name. Otherwise, the book would just be over people with with people and events. What you want is some narrative coherency, Rob. So I tried as much as possible to use those three key characters, the, the, the three originators of those units that I've just mentioned. There were more, actually actually, but those are the three important ones. Uh, So we're talking about Jumbo Courtney, Nigel Wilmot, and Blondie Hasler, who, of course, is the leader of the Cockleshell Heroes. And to tell the story really using their personalities, their achievements, and the achievements of their men as as the narrative drive, so that there was a coherency. Each time I moved on to one of these new units, you could see how they developed and what they managed to achieve. And why was the SPS needed in the Second World War? Well, um, they come directly out of the army commanders. So we have to go back to why the army commandos were needed. If you think about the situation in June 1940, it's post-Dunkirk. France has been knocked out of the war. I mean, Britain's really in a hole at this point. We've been chased off the continent. Of course, we have a presence in the Middle East. But how on earth are we going to stop the Germans from dominating the continent on the one hand and invading uh, the UK on the other? And Churchill, being the pugnacious and you know and rather optimistic character he was, very quickly came to the understanding that we needed a force to strike back. Even if it wasn't going to re- achieve huge material damage, it would be a major psychological uh, and, and sort of PR success if we could show that we were still taking the fight to the enemy. So he came up with this idea of army commandos, this huge force of raiders who you could land on the coast anywhere around Europe. And it was out of those army commandos, uh, one of whom, of course, was Jumbo Courtney, that Jumbo Courtney thought, OK, we can land in big groups and we we can do a lot of damage, but we can also land in small groups, really small groups, because if you think about it, a canoe just has two people in it. And those canoes will enable people to get in and get out almost unseen. And, and amazingly, he believed, and I think he was right, even that small number of people, two, possibly there'll be three or four com- canoe teams, you can create an awful lot of havoc and do an awful lot of damage. So that was the thinking behind Jumbo Courtney's uh, plan to use canoes. And it's very interesting. He, like all innovations, he, it was poo-pooed by the senior uh, staff when they first heard about this. But he uh, insisted on a demonstration when he was training up in, up in uh, Scotland that he was going to show the Navy who, of course, were providing the the vehicles for the commandos. He was going to show the Navy that it was possible to approach one of their commando ships secretly, unseen, chalk marks on the hull, and then get on the ship itself and steal something from the ship to show that he could get in and out without really being known. Now, you might ask the question, why was Courtney qualified for this? Well, he wasn't in the sense that there was no, no such thing as a military unit before this time that used canoes, but he was an experienced canoeist. He had 
bought a recreational sporting canoe in the 1930s and used it incredibly on this one-man mission uh, up the fabled White Nile from the source of the Nile all the way to the Mediterranean coast, a distance of 4,000 miles. I mean, a really astonishing journey. And he did it on his own. He did it on his own. He avoided many hardships along the way, many near-death experiences. And by the time he got to the other end, he was uniquely positioned to understand not only how you survive on your own in a canoe, but also how you move it stealthily to points of, you know, of, of coastal points to shorelines. Uh, and it was this knowledge, and interesting enough, one quick codicil to that, um, Rob, he was so taken with canoes that even after he married in 1938, he persuaded his bride that they should go on their honeymoon in a canoe and they canoed down the Danube. So he's completely taken with the idea of canoeing as a mode of transport. But he also realises it has a military application. And what kind of men joined the SPS? What kind of person were they looking for? Well, I, I think the type of person that he was looking for himself is very much the type of person the SBS still recruit today. So you want unshowy people, but you want determined problem solvers. They're not big, muscular, shouty, punchy types. They are the type of person you wouldn't notice in a crowd, but they have a very particular skill set. They are uh, absolutely determined to you know, solve whatever problem they have. They are very self-disciplined. I think this is one of the key elements still operates in the SBS today. You, you, you shouldn't expect people to tell you what to do. You need to work out what you need to do. We have an expression in the British military, um, uh, which is basically from comes from the Germans' mission command. And that, that effectively delegates all the way down to the bottom of the uh, command chain. And the SBS, certainly Courtney understood this in the in the 1940s. Uh, you, you, if you're going to send just a couple of people out on a job, whatever their rank, they need to be people who can get the job done without, you know, without having someone over their shoulder telling telling them what to do. I just read out uh, just a, a quick quote actually, because it really does sum up the sort of people who were in these or original units. Um, and this is a quote by uh, Courtney's brother, actually. And Courtney's brother, who joins the SBS himself, he joins uh, Courtney's unit, his brother Gruff, uh, sums up the, the, the men who served in the early SBS. He writes, they were ordinary Britons drawn from a wide range of routine peacetime occupations and, with few exceptions, had no exotic background. Nor were they undisciplined misfits and troublemakers, for neither could survive in a unit where the most rigid self-discipline and loyalty were required for survival. Their motivation was as mixed as one would expect. The normal measure of undemonstrative patriotism, useful adventure, self-reliance, independence of mind, and a liking for responsibility. Generally speaking, they were individualists, loners, and survivors. They were full of spirit, but quiet fellows, intent on getting on with the job, not boastful or belligerent, and certainly not the bloodthirsty thugs that commandos were made out to be by some irresponsible members of the British press. And I think that really sums it up. And it, it is uh, without question the sort of person that the SBS in particular, possibly also the SAS, uh, looks for today among their recruits. So when was the SBS first properly tested? What was their first major operation? Well, uh, the first major operation, I mean, incredibly was carried out by Courtney himself. I say incredibly because already at this point he's commanding the unit and you really don't want to lose your commander when you've got this fledgling type of unit. But just like Sterling with the early SAS used to go on 
their missions. So did uh, Courtney. And Courtney, I mean, the first mission is particularly telling, actually, because it's a beach reconnaissance of Rhodes in the spring of 1941. So the unit's been formed towards the end of uh, 1940. And a few months later, it's been taken out into the Mediterranean with the rest of its commando, 8th commando. Uh, and very quickly, Courtney is looking around for opportunities and he comes across a man called Nigel Wilmot. Now, Wilmot is the second of the three key figures in the story of the uh, of the SBS. And Wilmot himself, having uh, been a veteran of the Narvik operation, has also realised that you need... To, uh, you need beach reconnaissance, basically. So I think, to be fair, Courtney in the early days is really thinking of SBS soldiers as saboteurs of people who are going to cause havoc on a coastline, albeit going in with 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 canoes. Uh, Wilmot is very much of the opinion, no, you go in quietly, you get information, and then you leave. And he tells Courtney what he's planning and that he's been given the job of getting as much information as possible about the beaches on roads because there's a big operation to land on roads. And Courtney says, I think we can do it with canoes. So the first operation is the spring of 1941, carried out by Courtney and Wilmot, these two giants of the story. I mean, can you imagine if they'd been lost in that first operation? We wouldn't be having this conversation, Rob, <laughs> to be truthful. But fortunately, they were not. Uh, they accomplished that mission, although it was daredevil stuff. I mean, Courtney almost drowns. They almost get bumped by uh, German sentries. And they come off with this amazing cache of material that allows them to begin to prepare the invasion. Now, as it happened, the invasion never took place, but it doesn't matter because it was proof of concept. We now can use canoes uh, being launched off submarines. And of course, the submarines can get them, you know, pretty much anywhere in the med, and in fact, anywhere in the world quite silently. And then the final insertion is done by canoes. And you've already mentioned a couple of times Operation Frankton. I mean, that when reading your book is the the most dramatic incident, I think, in the, the story of the SPS. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little about that. Yeah, I mean, Frankton's amazing. So I, I better quickly say a word about the about the leader of the operation at Frankton, and that is uh, Blondie Hasler. I mean, Blondie Hasler is a third of the three giants in the story. And Hasler um, was a regular. He was a regular Royal Marine, uh, a man whose father had died in the uh, during the First World War, very fit, very determined, very single-minded. Some similarities. I mean, all three men were different characters, some similarities with the other two, certainly in terms of his concept of what he wanted to achieve. And although you had, let's say, Courtney with the saboteurs and the dropping of the secret agents, and then you had Wilmot really interested in beach reconnaissance, which, of course, proves to be such a major part of the Second World War and really is, you know, arguably the biggest single influence of the SBS to, to the victory in the Second World War. You also had this third character, Hasler, who was interested in blowing up ships in harbour because the uh, Italians had already shown very effectively that they could do that with manned torpedoes and also with an exploding motorboat. They had knocked out a lot of British ships, including badly damaging two uh, battleships. So there was very much a feeling in the Navy, uh, in, the, in the British military, that we needed to create something similar. And so Hasler was given the job of doing it. Actually, he very quickly realised, forget about exploding motorboats, the thing to use are our canoes and swimmers. So really, all three of these people are coming to the same idea or really coming to the same conclusion, but with slightly different modus operandi. So Hasler gets given the uh, go-ahead in the, in the summer of 1942 to create 
the RMBPD, the Royal Marine Boom Patrol Detachment. Bit of a mouthful. And actually, all that meant, to be truthful, Rob, was uh, it was effectively a cover name for what is going to be a secret uh, Royal Marine Commando Unit whose job is to destroy shipping. And Frankton was an unbelievably optimistic operation. I mean, in a nutshell, uh, they were going to drop off six pairs of canoeists, that is six canoes, each one manned by two people, including Hasler himself. Hasler was determined to go on this operation. The the His boss, uh, Admiral Mountbatten, tried to stop him, but he said, no, no, how can you send your men on the first mission and not go yourself? So Hasler's given the go-ahead. These six pairs of canoeists are going to be dropped off at the entrance to the Gironde estuary. They will then paddle over a period of three days 60 miles up the estuary, of course, deep into enemy territory. And when they get to Bordeaux Harbour, they're going to sink some of these fast merchant ships that uh, have really been causing havoc uh, over the preceding months, or at least, you know, doing serious material damage to the Allied war effort by moving supplies back and forth between the axis, really vital war supplies. So the decision is taken to knock out these ships. How are we going to do it? They think of doing it from the air. They think of doing it uh, from the ground. And eventually they realize, or at least um, Hasler offers, to carry out this amazing canoe operation all the way up the Gironde Estuary, as I say. So the plan is to use six pairs. Only five start the mission uh, on the night of the 7th of December. So it's in the midwinter too. So you can imagine that complicates matters, freezing water. Only five pairs actually start the mission from the from the submarine safari about five miles off the coast of France because one of the canoes has got damage as it's being brought up from below, you know, much to the consternation of the two commandos who train. And so five start off and only two get all the way to Bordeaux. I mean, the the fate of the others will not become known until after the operation. Um, Two of those canoes are overturned. They capsize, which shows you how tough the water was, particularly before you got to the estuary. And another uh, group are captured, you know, on their way in. So you've just got two pairs finding themselves all the way to Bordeaux. They arrive there on getting close to uh, the 11th. They decide they're going to carry out the operation on the night of the 11th, 11th and 12th. They get into a hiding up position, lying up position, which they stay in all day on the 11th. And then as soon as it's dark, they come out and they begin their attack. Now, Hasler arguably takes on the most difficult job with with his canoeist, uh, Bill Sparks, uh, and they go up the right side of the river, and then the other pair go over the other side. And between them, they, uh, you know, again, incredibly sort of dangerous operation. They're almost spotted on a number of occasions. You know, there are moments where they almost give the game away, but they don't quite. And they manage to put limpet mines on five separate ships. They're not exactly sure they've got the right ones, but anyway, they've got five big merchant ships. They're pretty sure they're, they are the ones they're looking for. And then they begin their exfiltration, their, their escape. And this is where things get particularly tricky, Rob, because uh, Hasler had had to tell his men before the operation, you know, listen, if any of you don't want to go, feel free to tell me now. But I can tell you that there will be no pickup by submarine, which is typically, which is usual in the case of these uh, maritime special operations. We're on our own. If we're going to escape, we'll have to escape through France into Spain. And honestly, given that very few of them could speak foreign languages apart from Hasler himself, who had good French, there was very little chance of that actually occurring. And so it proved because of the two crews that actually carry out the operation, only a single crew, that is Hasler and Sparks, after again, a more amazing drama, managed to get all the way to Spain and freedom. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. 
But the carnage on Omaha, in my view, and in the, in the view of the SBS at the time, was partly the result of the Americans not trusting the SBS to put markers up prior to the arrival of their, of their landing craft. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I mean, it's, it's an incredible story, but, but does it also highlight quite how dangerous these missions were? I mean, how much risk were you taking by joining the SBS? I think, I think it was probably, you know, arguably one of the most dangerous things to do in the Second World War. Not, you know, you, you can look at the Bomber Command and you, you see that 50% of them were killed in operation. So, you know, after that, in retrospect, of course, we realise how ridiculously dangerous that was. But if you just think about it from the perspective of these two men, you know, these groups of these, these canoes of two men going into lonely shores to carry out missions with no backup, with hardly any firepower, they usually took a, along a Tommy gun at best, but pistols and knives. And from October 1942, with the extreme likelihood that if they were caught, they were going to be executed, which is exactly what happens to six of Hasler's men. Two drown and six are executed by the Gestapo. I mean, it's absolutely horrific uh, uh, toll on their lives. And yet I haven't found a single instance in the coppice, in the RMBPD, in the SBS, all the way through the Second World War, in which someone said, Do you know what, I'm not doing it. They, they, they absolutely were prepared to keep going back again and again and again. And the Japanese, by the way, were also others who, who executed some special forces soldiers. So pretty much in every theatre they were involved in, apart from against the Italians, uh, there was a good chance they were going to be killed. So astonishing bravery and cold-blooded bravery too, Rob, because, you know, you're... you're there's rarely a big firefight. You're just moving slowly into a coast. And some of the most moving descriptions I felt when I was researching the book were what people were feeling as they were heading into a coastline. Uh, you know, they weren't concentrating on the mission. They were aware of every single sound and, you know, their senses were alert. And in one sense, they were alive in an adrenaline sense, but in other senses, they were utterly terrified and feeling incredibly alone. I think one of the interesting things about soldiers' bravery in wartime is it usually coincides with you being part of a unit, you trying to rescue someone, you doing something to help your mates. These were just small groups going in alone. And the sort of courage that took is, is in my view, pretty unique. And you mentioned earlier about the um, beach reconnaissance aspect and how important that was. And that particularly comes to the fore in the book in uh, the invasions of both Sicily and D-Day. So what was the role of these special forces in those two operations? Well, this is really the job of the coppice. And, and what's interesting about the coppice, I, I talked about Nigel Wilmot earlier. And by the end of 1942, Nigel Wilmot, who'd carried out the initial operation with Jumbo Courtney, was given authorization to create a dedicated unit that would be involved in beach reconnaissance. And the strong argument he had for that is that they'd sent a kind of mishmash of, of, of characters uh, led by Wilmot, known as Party Inhuman, 
into the torch landings or just prior to the torch landings. And the torch landings have gone very badly in terms of what they knew and where they were going to land on the coastline. And frankly, if they hadn't been up against the Vichy French, it would have been carnage. But uh, what what Wilmot was able to argue is we need proper information about what is on the beaches, the exits from the beaches, the sort of firmness of the beaches as whether they can take wheeled transport and of course the gradients leading into the beaches and any defences there are there. So there are a whole series of bits of information they need and they create this amazing unit called COP, Combined Operational Pilotage Parties. Uh, and within COP, not only do you have navigators like uh, like Wilmot, who are experts at gathering all this this uh, hydrographical information, but you also had engineers, SBS trained, who would go in and get all the military information from the beaches. I mean, it was a it was an all purpose, brilliant unit that began to prove its worth in Sicily, as you pointed out. That's his first deployment. Although interesting enough, Sicily, of course, takes place in July 1943. But these, uh, the coppice are actually on the ground on the coast of, of Sicily as early as March 1943. So you can see they need to be doing this work months in advance. Although a lot of them die in the early operations, they drown, they're, they're captured, they're killed in firefights. There is very much a sense of it works. If it's done properly, if they're given the right kit, we really can achieve something extraordinary in terms of getting the information to guarantee, or at least as close as you can in any military operation, that these huge amphibious landings that they, are, they of course, ultimately have got planned for D-Day will succeed. And so how far did the information the, the SBS and the, the sister organisations provide actually affect the plans for D-Day? Uh, well, they affected them in a number of different ways, actually. I mean, the first and most obvious way is the uncertainty as to which beaches uh, you could use. Now, the, the, the selection of beaches is crucial, and there's a lot of debate about whether it was going to be in Normandy or whether it was going to be in the Pas de Calais. They eventually go for Normandy, of course, as we know, because it's a little bit further away from the sort of centre of German defences. There was a feeling that the Pas de Calais was much more strongly defended, which it was. But what you need when you're landing, as I've already sort of alluded to in some of the comments about the coppice, is you need all that crucial beach information. And and we're talking about the greatest amphibious invasion in history here, Rob. They needed to know that those beaches were were firm enough to take all the wheeled transport and the tanks that would be coming over them within hours of the first troops landing. And so the first and most crucial job given to the coppice was to land on a couple of those beaches. That is the, the beaches really at the intersection between Juno and and Gold, which is where the um, uh, the Canadians and the British soldiers are going to land. They needed to know whether the beaches were firm enough. There was a suspicion they might not be, and until they knew for sure, all planning was on hold. Once they've been given the task to actually carry out this operation, uh, Wilmot picks two of his best people. He picks two of his strongest swimmers because they're going to be delivered close to the shore. They're going to have to swim in the last uh, uh, bit. And when, once on shore, they're going to have to gather up all this crucial military information that will be needed for the landings. And in particular, are those beaches hard enough to take all this traffic? So the men they choose are Logan Scott Bowden, who's a major, just 24 years old. And, it, you know, it's worth saying, I suppose, Rob, that all of these men in the special forces, bar a few of the uh, the commanders and uh, Jumbo Courtney being the obvious one, were young men. I mean, they're in their young 20s. And his oppo, or his junior, Sergeant Bruce Ogden-Smith. So it's these two men who swim in to the beaches of Normandy, uh, heavily guarded by the Germans, even at this stage of the war, and gather information during the night of New Year's Eve and New Year's Day 1943 to 1944. And they come back with samples of sand and, and, and pebbles, and they do a 
pretty good survey of the beaches and its defenses. And they come back with absolutely crucial information. And the most important information of all when they test the sand is the beaches will hold the wheeled traffic. So all of a sudden we can move the, uh, the argument forward. And while I'm on the subject of Scott Bowden and Ogden Smith, I should also point out that just a month later, they carry out a second beach reconnaissance. They've been given two medals for the first reconnaissance. They're gonna be decorated again for the second one. This is all completely top secret at the time, needless to say, Rob. And in this second operation, they survey the defenses at Omaha, which is the third of the original three beaches. They add two on shortly after this. And it's at Omaha that they get all this crucial information as to the sophistication of the German defences already, even as early as January 1944. And they feed all this information back to the Americans. And, and Scott Bowden says to Bradley, who will command the American troops on D-Day, um, you know, it's going to be a very tough proposition. Can we recommend that you use as much of our assistance as possible? So what COP will do, Rob, I should point out, is not only get this information in advance, it will also be used to guide in the forces during the actual landing, both as pilots on the landing craft, but also even more importantly, the use of canoes and in the case of Normandy, midget submarines to put up markers to show the landing craft the right way to go. Now, the reason this is so important is because on D-Day itself, where they have these midget submarines, and that is uh, in the Canadian and British sectors, everyone gets to the right place and land properly and casualties as a result are minimized. I mean, you know, as much as they can be, they still lose a lot of people. But the carnage on Omaha, in my view, and in the, in the view of the SBS at the time, was partly the result of the Americans not trusting the SBS to put markers up prior to the arrival of their, of their landing craft. They did agree to pilots, but not, not the markers. And the end result of all of this, contributed to the bad weather and a strong tidal set, is that enormous numbers of American troops at Omaha land at the wrong place. Now, we've always known that, but what we didn't know uh, is that, that it could have been stopped if the Americans had taken the right precautions. And sadly, they did not. The reason they didn't is because they worried that the, these markers would give the game away, which of course was a very serious danger. But there was a calculation among the British in their planning for D-Day that it was better to get to the right place than risk uh, the, the chance of the operation being discovered. They were proven right in that risk. And so overall, how important would you say the SBS was to the Allied war effort? I mean, I think it's a hugely underestimated uh, contribution that really made a material difference in a number of ways. Uh, it made a, a you know a very real difference in a psychological way. It really gave the British and the British people a chance to strike back from the earliest days. I mean, I've just talked about a fraction of the operations they carried out. They were happening all the time. They were heavily publicized. There were no details given out about what had been done. But if there was a major success, like there was at Operation Frankton, you, you can be damn sure people were told about it. Um, so you've got the psychological element, but you've also got the actual material effect they had on infrastructure, particularly in the Mediterranean, where a lot of uh, railways and, and uh, coastal infrastructure was destroyed. But you also have, and I think the single most important contribution made by the SBS to Allied victory in the Second World War, which is this beach reconnaissance, because it made all these major landings in Sicily, Italy, Normandy, and also in the Far East. They use them in the Far East. And the final bit of the book is to show how these various disparate strands, the, the copyists, the SBS, uh, and the Marines all come together in a unit called the, the Small Operations Group, initially commanded by Hasler, so there's some continuity there, 
It's based in Ceylon and it carries out, you know, over 100 or almost 200 missions in the Far East. And these missions make a difference, particularly the beach reconnaissance. And the reason I keep stressing that is because I think the coppice are pretty much, you know, some people are aware of them, of course, but they're virtually unknown to the wider public. And if there's one thing I hope my book does, it's uh, give due recognition, particularly to the coppice, but all those people who come under the broader SBS banner for the contribution they made that, I, in my opinion, has not been properly recognised uh, up till now. That's an interesting point, actually, about the lack of recognition, because the, I don't know if you'd call it a sister service. The SAS is, I'd say, very well known. I'm sure a lot of our readers and listeners are aware of the escapades of the SAS. Why do you think the SBS perhaps has been in its shadow for some time? Well, it's partly the way they operated. And, and, and you might find that odd because you could argue, well, you can just talk about the way you operated just as much. But it's a psychological thing. You know, there's always the, there's this great comparison between the SAS and the SBS then and now. And I think it still holds true. The SAS like to burst in through the front door making a lot of noise. But the SBS come in the back door stealthily and leave without being known. And I think the sort of people who go into a unit like that are the sort of people who don't like shouting about their achievements. So they didn't in the Second World War. They didn't after. To the Second World War, and arguably they still don't even today. It's just that finally, I think, after a, you know, a, now the SBS and the SAS have exactly the same training. They have the exactly the same selection, apart from the fact that the SBS have specialist boating skills that the SAS don't have. So they're on a relatively even keel. They're part of UK Special Forces. And I think finally, one of the reasons this book has been authorised is because SBS certainly want their history to be acknowledged. It's it's long enough now. They want to be understood for what they did then. And I think that there's a sense that there will be a bit of reflected glory to what we do now. I don't think we're going to get, by the way, Rob, a slew of books by SBS operators uh, talking about what they've done in recent times. There are very few of them. I've, I've been doing quite a, quite a strong study of, of what's been written. And I can only find two books by SBS operators. There are scores by SAS. So they very much hide their light under a bushel, but I think enough's enough. They want uh, recognition to be acknowledged. Uh, and, you know, and I'm very glad that they did too. And you've actually spoke, I believe, for the book to a surviving SBS veteran from the Second World War. What was that like? Yeah, amazing. I mean, you know, you can imagine I, I started the book in, in 2019. I, I was, you know, all up for conducting as many interviews as I could. One single copist compass mentors and willing to talk, uh, a man called Jim Booth. He was a sub-lieutenant in the Royal Navy before he joined the coppists. And, and uh, amazingly, fortunately for me, he was on one of, the, one of the key operations of the Second World War. I talked about those two swimmers. The other key job during D-Day were the use of these two midget submarines off the Canadian beaches and off the British beaches. And in one of those submarines, there were two of them, X-23, was Booth. And Booth, you know, he'd only joined the unit the, the, the previous autumn. He, his original job was just as a supernumerary. He wasn't supposed to be going on operations. And the guy who had originally been slated for operations really cracked up a little bit. So I said that no one refused to go on operations. Here's one, one, one example of someone who, you know, actually thought twice about it. So Booth takes his place and his account, you know, it was a real privilege to meet a guy who was then 98. And by the way, I should just add, he's just had his 100th birthday, Rob. He's just celebrated his 100th birthday, still alive and kicking and going strong, which is wonderful to hear. 
Fingers crossed he comes to the book launch, but his description of the moment as they were awaiting the invasion armada, he's got his back to the coast, of course, you know, completely exposed on the top of his midget submarine with the masts now up and the beacons flashing, waiting for the armada. Because if they don't get there soon, just as it turns light, uh, the Germans are going to spot them. And, and, you know, not only are they going to be blown out of the water, uh, they're going to give the Germans time to anticipate the invasion. So it's a really nerve-tingling last few moments. And then finally... The ships arrive and they're all cheering and dancing. And he said, it's interesting because it looked like we were standing on the top of, of, of the submarine. He said, it looked like we were literally walking on water as the various landing craft and tanks and everything went past. So, you know, amazing story. And just one thing to add, they, they, of course, the invasion was planned for the 5th. So they only expected to be underwater off the beaches for about 24 hours. In fact, they were there for 48 hours. And the reason that's a problem is they're running out of oxygen. So, you know, it was a race against time. Incredibly brave thing to do. I've I've seen inside one of those midget submarines. They're incredibly small. Um, I couldn't have think of anything worse than uh, being in that position prior to D-Day. But but Jim Booth uh, was absolutely up for it, and you know a total hero. Um, and you know it's wonderful to think he's still with us today. Actually, that's something that else that comes through in your book is the experience of being on a submarine for days on end. I mean, that was in some ways maybe just as unpleasant as being in the canoe heading towards enemy territory. I think for some of the SBS operators, it was worse, actually, Rob, because it's a means of delivery for them. Their job is on is, is on the coast. Um, and one thing you realise when you read a lot of these accounts of submarines in the Mediterranean is how unbelievably uncomfortable and more than that, dangerous it was. So a lot of the submarines that the SBS travelled in during the Mediterranean operations were later sunk. I usually, I usually add a, a footnote to indicate what happens to the commander and the crew afterwards. And on a, on many separate occasions, the SBS, of course, are on these boats, you know, putting up with the lack of air, the, you know, the poor food, the overcrowding, made worse, of course, by their presence, but worse than that, the depth charging. So uh, although the submarine's job is to get them to the location where they carry out their mission, they're also carrying out their own duties too. If there's an opportunity to shoot at a, a, an Italian or German ship, they will and they do. And of course, they're then counterattacked. And, you know, there are some really chilling descriptions of the SBS operators saying, you know, it was just horrific. You just had to put your head down, pretend to read a book and try not to show how utterly terrified you were. So I would hazard a guess that that was the single most frightening moment for a lot of those SBS men, not landing on the coast, bad as that was. It was actually being depth charged in a submarine. And I, for one, have even more um, admiration for the crews of the submarines, both then and now, actually, uh, as a result of reading those accounts. Um, okay, Saul, I think I've kind of been through the main things I wanted to ask you. I mean, obviously, there's a, a, a big story here, but is there anything really crucial you think we should have talked about that I, I didn't ask you about? One of the other great opportunities I had having uh, this connection with the current unit is going down to meet a lot of the, the uh, current operators, hearing about their operations. I mean, this is all completely top secret, Rob. And, uh, you know, and uh, you know, I can never whisper a word of it, but they did take me into their confidence. They spoke about where they were working in the world today. And if I can say anything that really struck me about all of that is that th- this their tempo of operation is ceaseless. They're constantly carrying out uh, operations on behalf of Britain and the British people that go unrecognised and yet are making a real difference, like getting involved in hostage rescue and hostage release. Uh, And uh, this unbroken link, this ethos, this, this kind of sense of pride in their past connects the two together. And 
even beyond that, when I was down on my visit, they said to me, look, you know, you're writing about guys in canoes, you're writing about people swimming, why don't you have a go? And I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm in my 50s now, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not in the first flush of youth, do you think that's wise? And they said, oh, you'll be fine, we'll keep an eye on you. Um, and they duly did. I went out in one of their fast uh, uh, attack boats, I then got into a clepper canoe and, and canoed for about maybe a kilometer, was absolutely knackered. So some of my guys in the story have to canoe, as you as you know, as I explained, for more than 60 miles. I mean, it's unbelievably tiring uh, paddling a canoe. And then I got out of the canoe into the water. I was in a full body immersion suit. This was in Pool Harbor in uh, February of this year. So it was incredibly cold. Uh, and then swam to shore just as the light was fading and just as it would have been for some of those commandos coming into the coast. And, you know, without going overboard about it, you can never replicate the conditions of war. It just did give me a tiny little insight into the, that sense of stillness and scariness and loneliness they must have felt as they approached a hostile shoreline. That was Saul David. SBS Silent Warriors, The Authorised Wartime History, has just been published by William Collins. You can read a version of this interview in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes pieces on medieval anxieties, Tudor romance, the legacy of 9-11 and how the British monarchy survived the First World War. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow when Robert Hutchinson will be answering your questions on the Spanish Armada. 